Welcome to NAC Chat, the National Arts Club podcast. The National Arts Club is a members club and arts nonprofit whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in the arts and educate the American public in the fine arts. It was founded in 1898 by Charles Takei, the head theatre critic for the New York Times. Club members have included such figures as Eleanor Roosevelt, Alfred Stieglitz, Stanford White, Will Barnett, Salman Rushdie, and Amanda Palmer. Today, our 16 arts committees present speakers and performers who share their work in fields such as fine arts, film, architecture, fashion, literature, and many more. This podcast will give an inside look to the happenings at the National Arts Club with interviewers who have worked with various committees to bring you some of the best the club has to offer. All our events are free and open to the public. You are welcome to join us at the Samuel Tilden Mansion on Gramercy Park, where the club has resided since 1906. For more information, including our calendar of events, visit our website, nationalartsclub.org, or find us on Facebook and Instagram at, of course, National Arts Club. And now, welcome to NAC Chat. Hi, and welcome to NAC Chat. Today, we're being joined by Erin Miller, who had a show, Works on Paper in the Trask Gallery, in March and April of 2018. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you. Um, So, you did this fascinating show for us. Um, These, what I think most audiences would assume is mostly charcoal works. Um, But then it turns out, no, that you're including coal in the practice and why then not you sort of take it away from there? I mean, sure. it's, how, how would you begin? What made you think of this work? Well, I guess it sort of comes from my childhood, where I grew up. My family are related to the coal industry. My father's a coal miner. Um, my oldest two brothers are still coal miners. Um, so it's sort of like that industry is really prominent in my history. And so when I moved away from Wyoming, where I grew up, um, I started to think a lot more about it and sort of the relationship of coal and us, everybody. And so um, I, I sort of think of that when I come to an art piece, but I'm also like an aesthetic kind of person, so I think about the visuals of something. So like a portrait, for example, is very interesting to me. And so the folds on a, on a dress or uh, the corner of a collar of a coat or something like that is like really interesting to me, like historically, how those things are portrayed. And so I'm sort of bringing that attention to detail to these portraits or drawings or whatever art that I'm making and, and kind of... Um, just trying to tie that together with other interests. So the industry, coal mining, as well as how one portrays, portrays themselves as uh, like their best self. So a portrait is something that um, someone has done for their daughter or for themselves to show how important that person is, either to them or to an institution. I'm walking around seeing portraits all over here. Um, Those things are important, and it's important to portray yourself in a certain way. You feel that you need to portray yourself that way. 
and so these that's like the definition of uh, their wealth or their power or their esteem in the world. And so in the images that I'm creating, putting a coal miner's head on it um, is sort of a, a less known portrait. For so coal miners are the people who are digging and sort of pulling this natural resource out of the earth and the portraits are being done of the daughter of the coal mine owner's family. So those things are all very related, but not automatically, it's not apparent unless you sort of know a little bit of the backstory. Um, so like, for example, um, one of the drawings that I did downstairs is sort of a take on an image that's at the Frick that was purchased by Henry Frick. But those people are related to uh, coal mining wealth from early 1900s. And so purchasing these portraits and having this beautiful building to put them in comes from the industry that uh, my family, other families like mine, have been sort of working hard to create. I'm not sure how that answers the original question, but I kind of went on. <laughs> no, but I think that's really helpful because, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things is that sort of unexpected moment, the, the picture's familiar, right? You're looking at a portrait that, I mean, has been taught in our history classes, has been, is recognizable. Even if you haven't taken that history class, it's just one of those right. famous, you know, like that lady in the big you know, shiny blue dress, you right. know, like everyone just knows it with the lace and the, you know, right. or, or the man with his sort of, you know, shoulder stance and his, you know, velvety, um, right. textured coat. And yet, then all of a sudden, what's off is this, the coal miner's head is on the on top of that. Yeah. And, and the pictures are all nearly black, they're all dark. Right. And so, you know, the natural response is like, oh, it's an artwork, it must be made of charcoal, right, and then you right. decided to bring in coal and use it as a part of the texture and the piece. Yeah. Um, when was the moment that you made that decision? Well, I was actually at an art fair and walking around and I saw this artist had done uh, sort of a wallpaper pattern with graphite on a black painted wall, and I was really struck by how sort of how much you could see it. I wouldn't expect that you would see the reflection as much, but because the black is sucking in all the light and the graphite is sort of reflecting, reflecting and it sort of creates this beautiful yet subtle image. Um, and the drawings are inverted, so the graphite and that reflection creates this kind of inverted image. Um, so when I was in grad school and doing drawing and um, just sort of bored with making, you know, portraits on white paper with charcoal. Um, <laughs> I started using these different materials and um, so the graphite came in. Graphite is actually a byproduct or the purest form of coal and so um, that I actually learned later on but um, because of the way I'm thinking in my artist statement, I pulled coal in and sort of did this flocking on the surface. So just like a wallpaper would be done in the 19th century, it's a sort of a glue process where you throw dust at the panel and it sticks to the surface and creates this 
like eerie image that's not really defined but sort of creates the atmosphere. So that's how the cold sort of relates in the graphite and why I use graphite specifically. It's also a really timely work for you to be doing. Yeah. I mean, this has been an important part of the conversation we've been having recently. Sure. And I think one of the things that's really striking about it is that you've been able to introduce a whole new dimension of the conversation, right? There's this kind of opposition that often happens with, you know, oh, there's the coal mining industry over here, and and the way it's often depicted is, and that's all it is. The, the coal mining industry is just a sort of self-contained, um, you know, people who work in coal mines, yeah, right? With very separate, little, yeah. yeah, separate, and not necessarily related as much to the cultural world and so forth. Sure. And yet, one of the things you bring home is how much it is tied in. And then, of course, you have that from your personal experience. And so, what I mean, what was it like for you when you realized I really want to make pictures? How how was it to sort of declare to your family, I'm going to go pursue this? Well, I, I guess I was always like artistic growing up mm -hmm. and had a knack for being able to reproduce an image by drawing it or sculpt something or create something. Um, and so they always sort of, they were happy with me making something that wasn't related to the culture around us, you know. Newcastle, where I grew up, everybody either worked in an oil refinery or the oil fields or coal mining or some sort of mining. So um, they really wanted us younger kids. I have four brothers and sisters, okay. and so a big family. But um, I'm the youngest, and they wanted me to get an education, go on to do something else, and basically move out of that job that town and so um, so they were always happy with me making images and making art didn't necessarily understand it always um, but because I do make representational images they were able to access it and I think about them in a more thoughtful way than like them and us as far as this coal industry versus the rest of the world basically um, because I have that relationship to like seeing it happen and knowing where it comes from. And, and then to even in my hometown, people don't know how much it relates to the outside world, so it's the opposite. So both sides have sort of a, a blocked view of what's happening in the world. We're working hard, doing our thing, but it's happening there or here. And um, so culturally speaking, I think people are creating an argument where we kind of have to come together and figure out a better way to, you know, create energy, I guess. And, and perceive how actually these relationships are yeah. so deeply tied. Yeah, and so these families, my family is like a generational coal mining family, and now it is, and so um, it's like part of our blood. Right. And so when you grow up in that, uh, it's easy to think that you can just go away and be like, oh, that's terrible, you know, the environment's getting ruined by your family. Well, not actually, it's all of us, because we're, you know, 30% of electricity in the country is coal-fired power plants. Um, and then it's natural gas, which is also mined in that area as well. So, um, 
so yeah, having that relationship um, has been a struggle to keep it so that I'm not creating an argument in my family as well. And I respect them. I respect the minors, and I don't always respect the politics and the way that we all talk to each other about it. Um, but I try and stay neutral and think of it in sort of a, a way of, like, we have to pay the bills, you know? And I think, you know, you've, you're doing this work now, but you, have you always done this type of work? No. Not at all. So you come to this after years of working in art. Um, what, how did, what were you originally sort of gravitating towards? Well, um, having grown up in Wyoming and then moving to Arizona, I thought a lot, and I was making images of the landscape and thinking about our relationship to nature. And so uh, I came to find really quickly that there's only so many landscapes I can make that I'm interested in, and you know, traveling the world is sort of an, in opposition to uh, a conservancy kind of ideal. And so um, I started looking more at me and my surroundings and like my upbringing, and and maybe it's not always interesting to everyone, but I think it's. Uh, relative to anything happening in the country right now. Um, and so I keep getting off track of your question. But. No, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, but it's interesting because these issues of sustainability, these issues of cultural capital, these issues of, you know, of, I was going to say, you know, sort of art politics and its relationship to industry, I mean, it's really across time, right, you know, the Medici right. bankers, yeah. they sort of built this massive international banking system, anyway, you know, so there's this history of how the art world has always been connected to right. influencing and being influenced by the financial needs of the moment. Sure. Um, and so, and that comes across in your work, this sort of deeply thoughtful, even, you know, highly theorized concepts. I mean, when you were in grad school, did you find yourself attracted to reading a lot, or were you... Yeah, I mean, there was a specific prof professor, um, Sarah Moore, who was art history professor, and she, I took a few classes with her, and it was um, 19th century uh, European art, and then it was uh, American landscape, and so those two classes actually inform most of what I'm thinking about now because of 19th century European art was the French Revolution and uh, David and Andres. And so it's sort of like really powerful images done by neoclassical artists. And I was attracted visually to those paintings because they're just so well done. Um, and also coming to find, you know, the more I did research, it's they're tied into the power structure of what was happening in the revolution. And so that to me is very interesting. This person selling painting um, of some high class person in that uh, time period. And they're also like influencing the government and, um, I don't know, it's just sort of nice to see and look at the intensity of their relationship to what was 
happening in the world. And it seems like you do a lot of research. You must read a lot about these periods. Well, I did. This is a, a little bit of an older series, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I thought about it for years. You know, this uh, group of drawings downstairs took maybe three years to produce, and so each of these, you know, is very labor intensive. And, so while I'm going through, and every time I have an exhibition, I think about it a little more, and, um, and yeah, and sort of try and relate it a little bit uh, more to what's happening in the world now, um, which it's very current, the conversation. You, um, talk, you talk about it being very labor-intensive. Can you talk us through the process a bit? Yeah. Um, so... Because it's a reference of a painting that already exists, um, I actually start with a projection. And so I lay out the basic format um, with a light pencil sketch. And I have to do this in the dark, um, mostly because the way the graphite reflects, you can't see it on a black piece of paper until there's like a very direct light bouncing off towards you. So I'm like, in the dark, looking at this black panel, you know, uh, drawing for hours and hours. And if you've been down there to see them, they're very delicate. It's in the lighting that's down there, it's a little hard to see all of the detail and the gradation and formatting. Um, but if you get it in the right light, it's really pops and has a nice soft glow to it. Um, so it's, it's about like really soft hand and I'm kind of like a printer, you know, I start at the top, and then I'm, by the end, I'm done at the bottom right hand, yeah. Um, and then so, after the graphite drawing is finished, I do the background, which is the coal dust, and that's kind of, uh, I use an adhesive that um, I just put on the surface in the shape. I'd already drawn that, you know, the location of where the coal is going to go in the early stage, and now I'm sort of putting the glue on, and then I throw dust at it, coal dust, which is, um, this is a specific coal from Wyoming, which is bituminous, different kind of coal than the, on the East Coast, which is anthracite. Um, and it's uh, low sulfur coal in Wyoming, and that's the kind of uh, strip mining powdery coal that um, you would know. come to find out no one knows what coal actually looks like except for me, so <laughs> every time I say this, I'm like, of course, that's what it is, but it's <laughs> not true. Um, but anthracite, which is here in West Virginia and, and that part of the country, is a very um, hard, more like a rock, so it's a shiny kind of uh, glassy rock. And so it doesn't really work well for this flat, uh, dusty surface. It's also harder to make into the powder, so I kind of crush these bigger stones into powder, and then that, so I have like a bucket now that's full of just powder. I have a mortar and pestle, mm -hmm. and I'm like grinding away, <laughs> and coffee grinders and everything else. Um, so you make your own coal dust? Yeah. Do you, and do you, do you go back to Wyoming to purchase the coal? Well, when I moved out here, I brought uh, like a 10-gallon bucket with me. And it was just sitting in my studio. Because I've been, I was living in Arizona and drove cross-country and came 
up through Wyoming and grab this bucket of coal. <laughs> so it's, it's been sitting in my studio. I actually have probably 400 pounds of coal in my studio now, but it's mostly anthracite from come to find out there's a place that sells coal in my neighborhood in Bushwick. It's I was very surprised because I've been driving upstate and like you know out of Cornwall and trying to find these places, um, but they sell it for uh, coal-fired pizza ovens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like so it's um, pizza makers and artists. Yeah. Yeah. When I go there, I'm like, can I have a bag? You know, they're like, what do you want? And they have this big pile, and it's like you know people go in and get fifty bags of coal. But yeah, it's sort of an interesting thing. I did not expect it to be here. Understandable. Um, yeah. But then again, you know, you never know what you're going to find in the neighborhood. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been here. New York's been here for many, many years, so they probably started off earlier burning coal than Wyoming did. Right. So. Yeah. What are you using the West Virginia coal for? Um, I use that in installations primarily. Um, I did an installation in. Rochester, New York, that was um, a damask wallpaper. So, like a you know, you see it downstairs. It's probably around um, in any sort of fancy nineteenth-century building. And um, I create the damask or the pattern and do the same kind of flocking, but I'll do it onto a white piece of paper. And uh, this one in Rochester was, I think it's like. 14 feet high by 14 feet across, and so um, very big. What I'll do is I'll do it on site. I'll lay it out on the floor, all the pieces of paper, do all the damask and adhering of the dust, and then I'll leave the dust on the damask and pick the paper up slowly, and all the dust trickles down on the surface and collects at the bottom and creates this just like really soft gray over the top of the paper. Um, and it seems like it's been there for a hundred years, you know, like collecting dust and um, whatever's in your household, but um, it's just like a soft, beautiful thing that is made of coal dust and it's kind of really interesting. And so at the bottom of that, there's lots of like rocks that sort of collect. And so it's sort of connecting um, things that are falling, but also where it's coming from in the ground. Um, yeah, and then I did another sculptural installation that was these two um, chairs, like wingback chairs, and I cut away the chairs to make it look like um, I was excavating coal from a big block of coal. So, like, imagine this chair is made of coal, mm -hmm. and so I'm like, digging away at it and I mean it's like not actually coal at all but um, it's foam and different wood pieces that I'm cutting away and so it looks like it's been dug away like these Wyoming landscapes and then there's all of this remnants all this pile of coal underneath and so that's like been a little bit of a traveling thing um, and yeah so I'm holding on to these things and in the winter, I put the coal in the back of our little truck so that the so we don't get stuck in the snow. <laughs> you know, weighing down, it works really well. 
how did you come to have these different media that you're working in? Often people in graduate school wind up being encouraged to focus on one yeah. and to really, in essence, pick one and right. then stick with it, right? Yeah. But you've been, it seems like, moving in and out of different forms. Yeah. Um, well, I should say that grad school was like six years ago, so <laughs> not very recent. Um, but yeah, I was lucky. The uh, University of Arizona, the program was, I was in printmaking, and so I was doing like black and white prints, lithographs, and um, which I was totally into, but it's a really intense process, and it's like slow, and then it, the product was like something you drew 10 steps ago, so you see it when you draw it, and then you make all the plates and everything in the process, and then a week and a half later, you can print the image, and it's like, okay, well, I have this image that I've made. It just sort of got to be like a, I don't know, a waste of time a little bit. I love printmaking, um, and I still do mezzotints and things like that, but the program was, they let me do painting and installation and sort of whatever we wanted. I had this big studio where I could, you know, use resin and do casting and stink up the place and nobody would complain. And, um, so it was, I was lucky in that way. And if I, I think if I was really bad at those things, they would have pushed me back into printmaking. <laughs> but, um, you know, by the end of the third year in the program, I was doing prints in an installation format. So, um, and I showed the plate, not the printed image. So I was always sort of interested in the, like the heavy duty part of it, the metal or the the manufacturing. Yeah, yeah, the chemical process and yeah, the manufacturing exactly. Given the fact that you work with so many um, challenging materials, do you have to take health precautions in your studios? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially with the coal dust, I wear a respirator. Pretty much anything. I mean, the graphite drawing is not toxic in any way, but um, so yeah, when I'm doing the dusting and things like that, and any time I'm uh, casting, I do a lot of casting, and that's really toxic, so I have a nice ventilated studio for that. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also a wood shop, and that's why, so yeah. So you are also a woodworker. Yeah. Have you always been doing that too? Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, my father, again, um, had a little wood shop in our garage. Not little, it was actually substantial for a home wood shop, and um, he taught me and my brothers how to make little things and then bigger things, and <laughs> by the time I left high school, I was making pretty substantial furniture. We had a good program there, too, for making uh, that sort of thing. Our high school wood shop was really well-equipped, and... Uh, the teacher was very good, and he let us make, you know, I made a, a Queen Anne high boy my senior year of high school, which was pretty intense. <laughs> pretty impressive. Um, and so, yeah, it was like an early, early learning process. And during all of, you know, art school and grad school and uh, post-grad school, when I came out in the recession, I had this skill, and so making furniture was like how I got by for... Um, six years of living in Tucson after grad school, and then um, moving out here, I got a job in a crate shop, and so 
related to the arts, and that's how I met a lot of people. And you know, any show I've had has been through somewhat through that uh, creating work. Sure. I mean, it's nice to be able to actually have the work be complex enough that it sort of contacts all these different communities. It seems yeah. like that's actually kind of a recurring thing about you. It's actually the way in which you do one thing and that allows you to hang out with a bunch of other people, right. which brings you over to another group of people. It's uh, yeah. What kind of way working are you doing these days? Um, I have a my own business. I opened like eight months ago. Congratulations! Uh, yeah, thank you. And it's called Aaron Miller Woodworks. Okay. Yeah. Um, soon to be AMWW, so that uh, all of my employees don't have to run around saying my name all the time. <laughs> um, but it's sort of branching out into doing more than just woodworking as well. So, um, but yeah, it's custom furniture, uh, cabinetry, um, tables, desks, pretty much anything. Um, but it's all been word of mouth and been very busy and have a few employees now. And, so, Success. Yeah, so and far. you have an art show? I mean, how do you have time to do... I don't have time. Okay. <laughs> I have so, no time for so anything. We're very, very lucky that you have time for us today. <laughs> no, this is great. This is fun to get out of the studio. Because I can work as much as I want. I can work forever, basically. Yeah. And I have that interest. Like, I want to work all the time. And when I was in the crate shop, I was making art for probably 30 hours out of the week. And I had a full-time job. You know, it's like very... Making things and working is very much a part of my existence. I think so. it's what a lot of artists recognize they need to do. I mean, there's a yeah. kind of making, creating. I mean, we make a big division out of it, but. Um, right. Yeah, know. I mean, I also taught out of grad school. I taught uh, for making, and anytime I had a class, everyone was very stressed out about how much energy it took to make an image. And, you know, you watch the movie Basquiat, and you're like, oh, I'm going to go be an artist in New York, and, like, have, it's just going to be great, and I'm going to be inspired, and I'm going to make images, but you have to learn, and you have to work really hard, and, um, I mean, I come to it from that perspective. Some people might have a luckier or more uh, dynamic, different kind of way of creating, but um, to me, it's about, you know, working hard and looking and being interested and also making something that someone else is going to be interested in looking at and um, yeah so hard work <laughs> <laughs> hard work is the name of the game um, what made you come to New York um, well we were in grad school my I say we my girlfriend um, and I were hanging out in Arizona teaching adjunct at various universities and woodworking and she got a visiting professorship in North Carolina, and I went with her. We just packed up everything and left Arizona. And um, I went there, and my uh, I did a Kickstarter program to make an etching press, and the money that ran, that ran out like very quickly that money, and so I had to get a job in North Carolina. But there was nothing. It was very I mean, I'm sure I could have found a woodworking job in a cabinet shop, but um, it just wasn't working out. And so I was applying up here to 
anything in the art world, and I had built crates and done art handling and things like that, so I applied to a job, and I've always wanted to live here. It's, you know, a place where your ambitions can soar if you want to, you know, hard work gets you places, and, and also, it's cool. I mean, you know, it's cool. Um, and so, yeah, I was down there and applying and got a job, and slept on someone's couch for a couple of weeks and then fell into a beautiful apartment in Bushwick and and now I own a building in, in East Flatbush and so I'm here to stay. Yeah. That's fantastic. Congrats. That's even, I mean, you got to own your own building. Well, it was, again, it was hard work and I own it with a few other people and so it's just, you know, a little bit lucky, but, you know. But luck that maybe you weren't. Sure. I hope I like to think so. <laughs> um, but Bushwick is a pretty hot place for the arts now. Yeah. Do you find a good community up there, or are you just too busy to even notice? Um, it, actually, not so much. And I work in the studio all the time, and when I come out of the studio, um, I see mostly tourists out there, actually, now. <laughs> Um, the graffiti, the wall art, the street art out there is really popular, and so there are more people there from Germany and France visiting in a tour um, than the art community. I mean, I, like there used to be Bushwick Open Studios, and that I think it's still going, but um, that's really nice to see to be able to go into the studios because it's a little closed off. I mean, you might see the people on your floor and a couple of studios down from yours, but it's not the kind of thing where you leave your door open and people walk through. And Arizona was like that. It was kind of fun where all the studios were just like connected and it was cheap and so everybody just kind of hung out a lot and didn't have to work that hard, <laughs> um, which wasn't great for my ambition. I wanted to go work hard. Um, so. Yeah, very different, but uh, the Bushwick art scene is very good, but it's not necessarily my scene, even though I'm there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, what, what has become more your scene in New York? Why do you find yourself gravitating? Um, I don't really have a scene. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, the woodworking culture, actually, has been taking over more of my creativity um, and I'm spending less time in the art studio, which is a good and bad thing. Um, coming out of school and for the, probably the past 15 years, I had made art every day for all of that time. And so starting up my business and working 80 hours a week on furniture has been um, a challenge to the studio, but I am pushing to get those creative interest into the furniture so it's been nice I mean it's a different thing and I don't necessarily think of every piece of furniture I make as art but sometimes I get to make a very creative interesting thing do you find yourself collaborating with the people who are ordering furniture from you or do you usually present designs uh, it's usually a collaboration but I can I mean I go and speak with them and sort of determine what they want and they show me maybe an image of something that they've seen somewhere that they thought was cool. 
And so I usually say, well, I'm not going to make that piece, but I will do something that's related that also relates to the stuff I do. And so um, it's very, it, everything I make is very different, but I think you can look at it and tell that I made it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I know you don't have much time these days to be in the studio, but when you do get in there, are there, is there a new idea or a new show that you're sort of beginning to think about? Um, well, I've been making these um, like tufted, pillowy wall pieces and thinking about this like winged chair or wingback chair from the 19th century. And so now I'm like focusing in on very small portion, maybe like the seat cushion. And so it's more abstract and more sort of colorful. There's like color on the surface and not just black and gray and black and <laughs> a little bit of white. Um, so that's something that I've been making a lot of and um, having fun with. And that's something that I can make really fast, which is different from the drawings, which take, you know, 20 or 30 hours. So, um, but yeah, that's the most recent stuff. And um, I'd like to get back to making more of them. But as of now, Furniture, so. <laughs> well, when you have employees and you're running a business, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it sounds like you have very full weeks. Yeah. Um, how often do you get back to Wyoming? Uh, once a year, probably. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Not as much as I'd like. I have a twin brother that I miss very much, <laughs> and uh, the rest of my family, of course. But um, anytime I go back there, you know, I, I romanticize it when I'm away, and so I think about it all the time, and think about the landscape and the industry that's happening there, and it's gorgeous, even the sort of uh, apocalyptic-looking coal mining region, those things are very attractive to me, the, and, you know, these machines are massive, and so seeing this million-pound truck drive by, it's like a million pounds can't even think of how heavy, I mean, even the ground must be, it's, yeah, it's just like really intense. And so when I go back there, I'm looking for those things and I go and find them and then, you know, I get a little bit like, okay, I remember now when I'm there, I remember why I moved to New York. It's a, it's a quiet place. People are a little bit hard and they work very hard, but it's, you know, uh, families stay with their families, and um, so it's not, there's not as much happening outside of the, the home life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I like the uh, ability to go to the bodega at midnight and get whatever I want, as well as go see a show or go to a bar or, you know, meet up with your friends uh, without driving through 30 below zero temperatures in the cold. Winter. <laughs> I mean, it gets cold here, but not that bad. It's not that bad, it's true. <laughs> um, well, I have to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, one of the things that we've been asking all of our guests at the end, uh, and you can answer it in any way that you wish, is if you could be an artwork across any form, um, across time, across media, by anyone, anywhere. What artwork would you be? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, 
No, I was in Italy recently, and um, the Sistine Chapel. I mean, I was you know in a place where all of this interesting stuff happens, and so uh, fresco on the ceiling would be fantastic because you are in a place that's permanent and it's going to be permanent forever. And this this is where the Pope is decided. You know, very interesting room and things that happen in there you would never. No one has access to, so that specifically would be the one, I think. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. NAC Chat is produced with the support of the National Arts Club Board of Governors and Education Committee. Interviewers include Charlotte Kent, David Zyla, and Steve Cass. The NAC Chat logo is designed by Nadine Heidinger. The music is composed by Kevin Bernstein. All speakers are invited at the behest of our 16 arts committees. The National Arts Club is a members club and arts nonprofit whose mission is to stimulate, foster, and promote public interest in the arts and educate the American public in the fine arts. You can learn more at our website, nationalartsclub.org, and our Facebook and Instagram, at the National Arts Club. 